<coughs> Good morning. Do you have a favorite superhero? Picture of uh, one of one of my early superheroes was a Superman, of course. I think almost everybody, if you were born after World War II, I believe, probably had this guy in mind. He was actually invented during World War II as a cartoon, as a, some, something to hold on to, someone to believe in that could actually help you in your darkest hour. Uh, and then over the years, he changed. Uh, I think the next one I had was uh, Captain America over there. I learned that uh, he's also Jake's, or was Jake's favorite superhero at some point. And you wonder what is it that makes us change our favorite superheroes. And, um, you know, most of them I think we like because of their special powers, maybe their special looks. <laughs> there was another one uh, I had at some point that I admired. I don't know if, if anybody knows who this guy was. He-Man, good. <laughs> I wasn't completely alone on that one. But uh, if you were to ask someone about 200 years ago who is their favorite hero, you'd probably get this answer. Anybody recognizes him? Yeah, that's George Washington. George Washington. As we're contemplating, celebrating the 4th of July tomorrow, you know, he kind of came to mind as I was looking at the passage today. He was a war hero, and many people attribute to him the victory that the United States in its infancy had over Great Britain. Probably not. Uh, we're going to save that one to the end. <laughs> and today we're going to look at what God considers a hero. Right? What is God's perfect hero. Uh, before we start our passage, which is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 17, as I mentioned uh, in the past weeks, I'm encouraging people to memorize what I consider to be the key verses for the book of Hebrews, which is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I will continue to offer whoever wants to stand up and recite those verses for memory uh, will be a blessing to me and to, I hope, everybody here. Anybody would like to stand up and recite Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Going, going, gone. All right, we'll just read it together again. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, somebody raised their hand? We have a volunteer. Raji, will you do it for us? Thank you very much. All right, so again, uh, next, next week I will not be speaking. You have a few weeks before I'm up again, so, you know, a few weeks to, to memorize Hebrews uh, 12, 1 through 2, and I'll keep asking. I'll keep asking. Okay, 
so th since we had it recited, we're not going to read it today. That's another advantage of having you recite it, as you won't have to hear me say it again and again. Um, so let's uh, look at the first portion of our passage today. We'll just start reading verses 10 through 13 in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Again, we start the passage with a four, so we have to kind of look backward and remember that the author has just told us about the fact that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And uh, most commentators will point out that this could have been kind of a stumbling block to the audience, right? It's written to the Hebrews, people from a Jewish descent, and we are told in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greek foolishness. So preaching about the cross, Jesus becoming a man and dying on the cross, was not a popular message in Jewish circles. Now, granted, these are believers in the Lord Jesus. They should have an easier time with it. But maybe still there's a little bit of a struggle. Why did Jesus, why did God have to become a man? Why did he have to suffer on the cross? Right? That's not the kind of hero we were expecting. Now, to try to appreciate that, you know, turn our mind back in time to a Jewish history. Remember, they had the Romans ruling over them, the Jewish people. They were under the Roman Empire, and nobody likes being ruled by other people, especially when you have to pay them taxes. In fact, that's what led to the United States rebelling against the rule of Britain. They didn't like the British king coming up with new rules for the colonies. They didn't like paying taxes for him. And that's really what led them eventually to rebel against the king of England. The same way the nation of Israel was not happy under the Romans. They wanted someone to lead them to victory over the Roman Empire. And they seized on this personage called the Messiah, which was prophesied would come as their deliverer. The Messiah was going to be the answer to their problems. He was going to be the one who saves them from the Romans. And now he came here and he dies on a cross. And he doesn't save them from the Romans, right? I mean, they're very disappointed. It would be kind of like George Washington going against the British and, you know, being uh, killed, tarred and feathered. I don't know what they, they would have done to him. You know, that would have been a stumbling block to Americans. It's a failure. He didn't succeed in doing what he wanted. That would have been the first thought about Jesus. Here's the Messiah, but instead of him destroying the Roman Empire, they were the one who put him to death. Now, we know he also rose from the dead, and he ascended to sit on the right hand of the Father, right? But the Jewish mind was stumbling by the fact that he was crucified, right? So because of that, we have this passage that explains how really Jesus, by becoming a man and by dying of the cross, was really the perfect Savior, this was really the perfect salvation. He says this, For it was fitting for him, it was appropriate for him, 
For whom are all things and by whom are all things, a statement of Jesus' divinity, in bringing many sons to glory. Remember we talked about it last time, how we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ, right? We have the highest place in the universe because of Christ, through Christ, but it was fitting for him to do it by making the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. A perfect captain, a perfect hero in the Lord Jesus required him to become a man and to die on the cross. That's the thesis statement of the passage, and now the author will explain why this really made Jesus the perfect Savior. Right? First thing we have here is a perfect Savior is one who commits himself to your cause. The perfect Savior is the one who commits himself to your cause. In uh, 1974, or, sorry, sorry, 1774, 1773, I forget exactly the date, uh, in the rebellion started against the British Empire. If I remember it started with this tea party that uh, people in Boston decided to throw. Literally, they threw the tea out to sea, and, and that really was the beginning of the rebellion. And uh, that, I think, maybe shortly after that triggered the Boston Massacre. And that's when the colonies came up in arms. And you had to announce and declare on which side you were on. And George Washington decided to declare himself, if you would, on the American side. And once he made that declaration, he was committed. He was a traitor to the British crown. And if he had been caught, captured by them, he could have been put to death as a traitor. Jesus, in a similar way, committed himself to the cause of the human race by becoming a man. This is what he says. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I can uh, say brother Matt. Brother Matt. And that's a, a, a term of fellowship, right? Matt appreciates it when I call him brother. You know what? The Lord Jesus will also call Matt brother Matt. Right? He told, uh, he said this um, when his own earthly family wanted to, to have some time with him and he was uh, busy working with his disciples, teaching them. It says, and he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He identified himself by the human cause by actually becoming a man. He had the same genetic makeup we have. He was a descendant of Adam like you and like me. A man in every way. Right? He could call us brethren. Right? Now, George Washington, you know, I don't know that he called other Americans brethren. Maybe he did. He may have just called them fellow citizens. Right? Jesus calls us brethren. We uh, you know, often would say things like family first. <laughs> this uh, week we had uh, an event most of you are aware of. My son managed to hit his head so hard on the pavement that uh, he had a concussion and actually a fractured skull. And uh, that disrupted my family's schedule, right? We dropped everything. <laughs> we took him to the emergency room, right? Uh, we're thankful that the Silvas had uh, girls at the time and they were willing to keep watching them. But uh, yeah, our whole family's clock stopped when that happened, right? This became a priority because it was a family issue, right? One of the members of our family was in dire need and we were going to do as a family 
whatever it took to take care of that need. The same way Jesus has become part of our family. We are his brothers and sisters. And our cause is his cause, right? A perfect hero or a savior, right? One who's willing to fully identify with you and your needs. Now, some other benefits of Jesus becoming a man are listed as our author is quoting the Old Testament. He says, uh, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Uh, God has um, revealed himself to the Jewish people in various ways in the Old Testament. Uh, perhaps the best known one is on Mount Sinai, when God descends in the cloud and fire and uh, speaks to, to them the Ten Commandments, and the people are shivering in fear, right? And they say, Moses, you go up and talk to God, because if we will, we will die, right? When Jesus was here on earth, mothers brought their babies to him. <laughs> Would you bless my child? He was accessible as a man. He was God, but he was a man. He was completely accessible. We were not afraid to be in his presence. Right? We could learn about God. We could come to know God in a personal way because Jesus became a man. He identified with us. Next, it says, uh, and I will put my trust in him. I confess, this is something that's, that's hard for our mind to grasp, but Jesus lived by faith. Right? He lived by faith, not by sight. He also lived by faith. He is not asking us something that, to, do, to do something that he didn't do himself. He had the word of God to him. God the Father spoke to him. He may have used the scriptures. He may have had different ways in which God communicated to him. But he accepted what God his Father said in face value, and he lived based on that by faith. Right? As an example for us, here we have you know, God in the flesh as a man living by faith. And we can look at him as an example. We talk about it when we recited those verses. It says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He didn't just become the reason for us to believe. He also became the example for us. We could see the perfect man living by faith in Christ. Then finally, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Again, he owns us. Right, the perfect savior, the perfect hero, uh, accepting us as the ones he came to save, committed to our cause. Okay, the next thing you would hope for in a perfect hero or a perfect uh, savior would be one who's willing to pay the price for your salvation by himself. Now, George Washington, to give him credit, he was what we would call a field general. <laughs> he was on the field with his soldiers, right? Today, you could have generals who are directing things from behind the lines and they're completely out of danger. Uh, you know, he, he did put himself in risk, right? But George Washington wasn't the only person who was at risk. Thousands of people died in the war for independence, right? So, you know, George Washington was maybe a great hero but he wasn't the perfect hero because others had to shed their blood. Not so with Christ. It said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I'm trying to read portions at a time, and I skip the next portion. Verse 14, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So, so there it is. It says, through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Our salvation was through Jesus' death. Who else had to die? No one. Right? Our salvation is secured by the death of Jesus alone. The perfect hero. He alone shed his blood for you and for me. Um, the next thing you would hope from a perfect savior is one who completely saves you from danger. Now, in the case of George Washington, uh, he, you could say he led the United States to victory. You couldn't say that he completely destroyed the British forces. He really just outlasted them, right? You know, he kept fighting, kept fighting, and eventually they said, you know what, it's not worth it. You know, you know it's just not worth it to hold on to these 13 colonies at the price of us losing the lives of our boys, too. And it's draining our treasuries to finance this war, you know, in the U.S. Right? So that's, that's how he won the war. He outlasted them. You know what? The British came back 30 years later, burned our capital. Right? He didn't, he didn't completely defeat the British. Right? He just kind of outlasted them. Not so with Christ. It said that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus completely destroyed the devil. Now, what do we mean when we say that? You know, obviously, uh, Jesus on the cross wasn't, you know, specifically attacking the devil. What he was doing is he was paying for our sins. Now, but how is it that the devil is involved in that? Well, the devil was the one whose goal was to separate us from God. A lot of you have gone through the stranger course, and there we kind of go in the, in, slowly through the scripture and to kind of understand the big picture of what's going on. And we found out that God created us to have perfect fellowship with himself. And then the devil comes, and he wants to break that fellowship that we have with God. How does he do it? Does he, do it? he leads us to sin against God. He tempted Adam and Eve, or Eve, specifically to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Eve did that and gave it to Adam, they were now in a state of sin against God. And because of that, they came under the penalty of death. They were separated from God. So Satan had the power of death in the sense that he was able to lead man to sin against God, and now man was under condemnation and under the judgment of death by God. Right? How did Jesus change that? By Jesus dying for our sins, he paid the penalty. Now we don't have to pay the penalty. He opened the gateway to heaven for us. All we have to do is put our faith in Jesus. And Jesus takes us to heaven. Right? Can the devil do anything about that? No, he's completely powerless. Even if the devil could lead me to sin again, which he probably could, it doesn't change because Jesus died for my past, for my present, and for my future sins. Right? The devil cannot break the relationship that I have with God. He completely destroyed the power that Satan has to harm me. Now, Satan could probably get me killed, but then I go to heaven to be with Christ. <laughs> you see, he took away the power. The devil can't do anything that really will hurt me. The worst he can do is send me to heaven. Right. 
So Jesus completely saves, right? He completely destroyed the enemy, a perfect hero, a perfect savior. I don't know which number I'm on. I think this is number four. I'd say a perfect savior has to save us from our greatest danger. Now, George Washington, to give him credit, I mean, he did gain or help the United States gain independence from, from Great Britain. But uh, some years after that, Frederick Douglass uh, preached a message uh, that was called, What is the Fourth of July to a Slave? What he meant by that, so this is before the Civil War, if you were a slave in the United States of America, it didn't help you at all, right? That, I'm sorry. It didn't help you at all that you were, um, you know, now no longer under, under the British rule, right? You were still a slave, right? You still had to do what your master told you to do. In fact, your master, you know, your American master may have been worse to you than whatever the British ever did to you, right? It didn't help you at all, right? In a similar way, being delivered from the power of Britain, or let's say the Jews, being, to be delivered from the Romans wouldn't have been really addressing their greatest need. Right? Let's say I was a Jew and Jesus came and he threw the Romans out of Israel. I would still get sick. I would still die. And I would still be separated from God for all of eternity. Right? It didn't really fix my biggest problem. Right? But Jesus came to save us, it says, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What's our biggest problem in this world? It's not the British. It's not the Romans, it's death, right? I mean, one day you're going to grow old and die. Oh, you might die before you get old, right? You can't even count on that. I mean, that's the biggest danger we all have, and that came because of sin, right? Now, Jesus didn't remove death, physical death, right? We'll still experience physical death unless the Lord comes first, which is better, right? But he took away the fear of death, right? So death used to be a bad thing, Right? I mean, I was afraid of death. You know, it, it would be painful. And, uh, you know, it would bring me into an area of an unknown. It would break all my relationships with the people I know. And to those who know better, it would bring me into an eternity of suffering in the lake of fire. And I think that's why there's this instinctive fear of death and grief of death, because there is that knowledge is embedded somewhere in man. Jesus didn't remove death, he removed the fear of death. Now death is a welcome friend. Death will usher me to the presence of God. Paul was able to say this when he was in prison about to be judged by Caesar. He said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's fine. I'm happy to live here and serve Christ. That's wonderful. If, if Caesar sends me to the line, wonderful. <laughs> I get to be with Jesus. Now, I mean, some things are sad about death. We lose relationships. But the relationship with, we enter is so much greater. It's not sad for the person who dies. Right? And, and if the ones you love also know the Lord Jesus, the one you love, well, you'll get to be with them in heaven forever, too. Right? So there's a consolation there as well. Okay, the last portion we have for today... Hebrews 2, 16 through 17. For indeed, 
He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So, the fifth and uh, last perfect, uh, what, what you'd want a perfect hero to be or a perfect savior, he's one who can see you through to the end of your salvation. Right? One who can see you through to the end. Uh, during the war for independence, uh, there was a, a dark period of time called Valley Forge. Valley Forge. For those of you who are familiar, there you go, that's what that picture is about. And uh, during that time, I think the, the uh, army fought a number of battles, which it didn't do quite so well in, but the purpose here really was fighting on. I mean, George Washington's strategy was fighting on, fighting on, fighting on. Eventually, the British will go home. And this was the darkest hour of the um, American army, right? And uh, they, they were running out of resources. I think the states were tired of sending food, tired of sending more men to fight. The men, you know, were only uh, signed in for like a year or a certain number of months of service. They were ready to go home. And George Washington needed to keep them together. And so throughout Valley, you know, that winter, I, I forget which year it was, you know, he, he was there trying to encourage the soldiers, you know, stick it through, carry on, don't give up, we'll win at the end. And uh, a lot of people will attribute that to the key to winning the war. It was just that encouragement, keep going on, don't give up, it was the darkest hour. As believers, we experience the same, right? We are saved from the penalty of our sins. We're headed to a future in heaven, but there's this in-between period. And you know what? Things are not always going well for us here, right? We can go through a lot of trials, a lot of difficulties. And uh, that's where this passage comes in. And it says, for he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Um, and it describes him as being uh, the priest, and the priest was the one who really was, was there to help the people. If you had a question, if you were struggling, if you needed help, you would go to the priest. He was kind of your in-between with God, right? He was there to help you. In a similar way, Jesus takes that place now in our lives. We can access God through him in prayer. He speaks to us. He says, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. We have this communion with him, and he continuously Encourage us. Now, in order to encourage a person effectively, you really need to know what they're going through. Right? I found that out this last week. Now, people are very compassionate, and I want to thank everybody who prayed for Joey. <laughs> and by the way, he's doing a lot better, if I haven't already said so. But uh, it's neat when someone can approach you and say, you know what, the same thing happened to me or to my son. You know, and I, I remember how hard that was, right? And, and they, they can console you or comfort you more effectively than a person who hasn't gone through that experience. That's 
One of the strengths of, of uh, George Washington was that he was right there in Valley Forge with the soldiers. He could have said, you know what, guys? I have a nice mansion in Virginia. I'll be back in the spring. You guys hold up. <laughs> okay, I'll be back. I don't think he would have found an army when he returned. Right? He was there with them going through the hard times. In the same way, it says this about Jesus. It says that in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to go through the same experience as we are going through to be effective in his ministry. That's what it means. And uh, so that, that made me stop and think about, well, in what way has Jesus shared in my suffering? Now, we, don't, we know he shared in whatever I've done. You know, what, every, any, every suffering I can experience, we know Jesus has experienced because it says so right here. But we can even think back to the gospel and, and kind of trace back what, what did Jesus experience? What kind of suffering, what kind of trials did he experience that are similar to what I'm going through? And uh, so I have a long list, and you can add to it, think about it in your own time. But all these things are things that Jesus experienced here on earth in order to make him an effective hero, somebody who can really come alongside and see us through to the end. Right? That's the purpose here. He is here to encourage us, to help us take that next step. Remember that race, laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us that we may run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus is coming along to encourage us, and he has these credentials. First, he was born in a stable. Anybody here born in a stable? I would bet everybody here was born in a better spot than a stable. Your first cradle, was it a manger, a box where they put food for animals? I mean, you're already doing better than Jesus from the start. Uh, Jesus spent some of his early days in the refugee camp. Did you know that? He had to flee to Egypt because Herod was going to kill him. So his family took him to Egypt, some sort of a refugee camp in Egypt. Uh, he was raised in the disadvantage of an oppressed people. Right? The Jews were under the Roman rule. They had to do whatever the Romans told them. Jesus too. If a, soldier, a Roman soldier told him to do something, Jesus had to do it. He had to obey his parents, who were often not as spiritual as he was. <laughs> I don't know if we have any young people here that, that still have parents over them, but uh, you know, it's hard to obey your parents. And uh, you know, sometimes a young person could be more discerning than his parents as to God's will for them. Jesus was in that situation. Remember, he was in the temple and started ministering. As soon as he was 13, he was adult in Jewish eyes. He was allowed to start teaching people, to speak about the things of God. He wanted to stay in the temple and start speaking to people about God. And his parents were completely confused. They already left Jerusalem, heading back home to Galilee when they realized they didn't have Jesus with them. They had to make a U-turn, go back to Jerusalem, look for him, finally found him in the temple. And he says, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And yet, what does it say? That he made himself subject to them. His parents said, no, we're going back to Nazareth. I don't know where you got that idea that you should stay in the temple and teach people about God, Jesus. 
but you're going home and you're going to become a carpenter. That's, that's what they say, right? That's what Jesus became, a carpenter. He had to work as a carpenter for most of his short life. Right? His actual ministry lasted three years, from about the age of 30 to 33. He was probably working for 17 years as a carpenter. Right? You wouldn't expect that. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. Uh, he experienced the loss of, loss of loved ones. Uh, we have in the scripture that he wept when Lazarus died, but he must have lost his father at a young age because his father doesn't appear after the age of, of 12 or 13. So sometime between the age of 12 and, or 13 and 30, his father must have died, which, uh, you know, can imagine the loss. You know, we all, we've all lost loved ones. And uh, to probably make it worse, Jesus, as the oldest, was now responsible to support his mother, right? Not that it was a burden to support her, but that was another responsibility on him. Possibly he had to support his siblings too, depending what their age was when his father died, he would be responsible to support his siblings. And we actually see them following him in the Gospel of John, which suggests, you know, maybe some of them were still young enough that Jesus was responsible for them. This is all kind of pre-ministry uh, hardships that Jesus experienced that are similar to what we experience. Uh, we can think about hardships during his ministry. Uh, Jesus lacked what we would consider the basic comforts of life. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus slept outside. He didn't have a house. Now, occasionally, he may have been invited to somebody's house. But as a rule, he did not. He made his bed where he could. Jesus was busy. <laughs> Anybody here can relate to being busy? He was so busy, sometimes he had no time to eat. I get paid lunches at work. Jesus did not. He had to work through his lunches. Jesus was probably somewhat sleep-deprived. It uh, says that he had to get up, he got up well before the sun rose to spend time with his father in prayer. How many of you rise up well before sunrise? <laughs> spend time in prayer with God. And this had an impact on him. Right? The scripture says, Jesus was tired, he experienced weariness, he experienced hunger, he was hungry, and he was thirsty, right? Jesus experienced all these basic needs you have, and living the kind of life that he did, he experienced it a lot more often than we do. Jesus can relate to you. Results of his ministry, I list this as possible discouragement. I don't know if you're sometimes discouraged by the results of your ministry. Think of Jesus. He was unrecognized by those who should have recognized him. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Unrecognized. 
He was rejected by those he came to help. It says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. People didn't want Jesus' help. He came to save them from their sins, give them eternal life, and they didn't want it. He was misunderstood by his family. His family thought he was out of his mind because of his lifestyle. He was persecuted by the authorities. You think here is the one nation under earth that should be following God. They should be supporting the Messiah when he comes, right? To save the human race. No, he was persecuted by them. <coughs> and then, finally, the falling away of, falling away of disciples. <coughs> A lot of people, you know, started out following Jesus and stopped during his lifetime because he wasn't the kind of savior they wanted. When he turned away from being the king of Israel, they, they were ready to crown him as king. And he said, no, that's not what I came for. People left. All right, we're not interested in what you have to offer. Yeah, that had to have hurt. And then, just thinking about related to the cross. <clears throat> he was betrayed by a friend. A good friend that was with him for three years sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Here he is. Go get him. He was arrested. He was lied against by witnesses. And he was convicted, even though the judge knew he was innocent. He was mocked, meaning made fun of. He was spat upon. Ever had that happen to you? He was beaten, probably beyond recognition. And he was scourged, which is using a whip with uh, bones or pieces of wood or nails in it so that it really does damage when it hits you. All his earthly possessions were taken away from him. All he had at that point was the clothes on his back, and even that was taken from him. Finally, he was nailed to the cross, which my understanding is uh, the worst form of public execution ever invented, designed to inflict as much suffering as possible on the human body for as long as possible. That's the purpose of the cross. I don't think you've experienced the suffering Jesus hasn't. <laughs> and yet, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, meaning thinking little of the shame he was experiencing, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus says, carry on. I know what you're going through. Carry on. I don't know who your favorite hero is. Mine is Jesus. If you know of a better one, let me know. If you don't know of a better one, why not commit your life to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you identified with us, that you 
committed yourself to our cause and in so doing became the greatest savior the world, the universe has ever known and ever will know. We uh, confess nobody is worthy of uh, admiration as much as you are. Nobody is worthy of our confidence for eternal life as you are. We pray if there's anybody here who has not yet put their faith in you for salvation, that you might help him do so, him or her do so today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.